One of my favorite Christmas traditions is watching Christmas movies. Anybody else like that? I like to watch Christmas, even though I've seen them already uh, several times. I just like to watch them all over again. So we get together, family gets together, and we'll put in a Christmas movie and we'll watch it, even though we've seen it probably 20 times. Uh, So what I want to do, because of that uh, fun tradition that we have as a family, and maybe you do as well, during the next several weeks, I'm going to use some of these Christmas movies that we love and we love to watch as a a kind of a springboard to kind of jump into uh, the significance of Christmas. Because one thing you'll notice, in most stories, there is a glimpse of the greater story of what God has done through Christ. That's why we love these stories. And so it's the same is true in these Christmas stories, these Christmas movies. And so this morning I'm going to be using one of my favorite Christmas movies, Home Alone. Has anyone seen Home Alone? A few of you, hopefully. It came out in 1990. It's been around for a while. But it's a, it's a comedy. It's a fun movie to watch. And uh, we have a lot of fun watching. Actually, we just, we just watched it the other night. We gathered the family around and, and watched it again. And believe it or not, Home Alone, even Home Alone, this movie with uh, Macaulay Culkin, shares some parallels to the the Christmas story. The movie opens with this scene of this beautiful house in Christmas time, and the camera takes you inside, and there are about 11 children running all around the house, and several adults. It's just, just chaos. Some of you can relate to that. It's just chaos. And you wonder, what's going on here? Well, you find out what they're doing is that they are getting ready to go on a trip for Christmas to Paris to visit family. And so they're trying to feed this group of people. So you have a pizza guy there. You have a a police officer that you find out later is really not a police officer there trying to get people's attention. It's just chaos. And in the midst of the chaos, there's a a young little boy, eight-year-old boy. His name's Kevin. He's the youngest of five kids in the McAllister household. And Kevin... He's trying to get ready for this trip, and he's trying to figure out what to do. He's asking questions, and no one wants to help him. He's just having a hard time. All these different run-ins with people in his family. Things are just not going his way. And so, after several dramatic moments in the in the Callister household, uh, they kind of have this conflict where Kevin and his mother are talking to one another. Kevin's mother's taking him up to the... Uh, bedroom where he's going to spend the rest of the evening evening because of some misbehavior and so they're having this conversation well Kevin uh, being the uh, eight-year-old boy that he is kind of lashes out at his mother and he says I wish my family would disappear and obviously this was somewhat hurtful to his mother and she says well I hope you really don't mean that if you mean if you mean that then say it again And so he says it again and then turns in defiance to his mother and marches upstairs. Well, as this unfolds, everyone goes to bed. And then at night, there's a storm. And the storm knocks knocks out the electricity, which clears their alarm clocks. This is when you had alarm clocks that were only connected to the electrical outlets. Okay, And so this is 1990. And so you had the alarm, cleared the alarm clocks. And so they wake up, they realize they're late for their flight. So everybody, this whole 
crowd of people are trying to run to and fro, trying to get ready. They finally get all ready. They say, I need you to count the children. They count the children. Well, a neighborhood kid has come over, being nosy. And he's, he's kind of looking through the stuff. And so as they're counting the children, they count the neighborhood kid instead of Kevin. Because Kevin has been exiled to the attic bedroom because of his misbehavior. And so they count all the children. They accidentally count the neighborhood kid. They get in the van. They're, they hustle to the air, airport. There's some holes in the plot, admittedly. But they finally get on the plane. And halfway to France, they realize we forgot Kevin. So Kevin's at home alone. Hence the title. Well, Kevin wakes up in the morning. And he, you know, marches downstairs, just kind of going through his tradition, his routine. And he's realizing it's kind of quiet in the house. And so he fixes him some breakfast and, you know, he didn't think much of it. But then after a while he realizes, where, where is everybody? So he starts calling out their names and no one answers. He walks around and realizes everyone is gone. His wish has come true. His family has disappeared. And at first there's a, maybe a hint of alarm on his face. But that quickly goes away as he realizes he's home alone. And he can do whatever he wants to do. And he starts to do that. And he starts with jumping on his parents' bed and eating popcorn for breakfast. And so he, things like that start to happen. And then he watches a movie that he's not supposed to watch. And then he is eating, you know, things that are bad for him. And he's basically saying, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. This is, this is true freedom. You know, my parents are gone. It's just me in the house. He's just... Thinking, this is what life is all about. This is, this is true freedom. You know, as I'm watching this movie, we're obviously chuckling about it, having a lot of fun watching it. But I'm realizing, you know what? There's, there's, some, there's some themes in here that I'm very familiar with, even in my own life. And that is, Kevin reminds me a lot of myself. And maybe you all as well. And really all of mankind. Tracing all the way back to Adam and Eve. Because you think about the beginning of humanity. God creates man and woman. He creates them in in an environment for them to flourish. But at some point, Adam and Eve defy God. They turn their back on God. And they seek out what they believe is true freedom. You know, in a sense, they want their family to disappear. They just just want them. They want what, what they want. And they do their own thing. And I think we do the same thing that they did, that Kevin did. And this is what the Bible calls sin. It's, it's doing your own thing, going your own way, trying to be the master of your own fate, so to speak. And the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we all have tried to build our lives on something other than God at some point. And that's what Kevin was doing. He was separated from his family, thinking, now I'm going to live the life I want to live. And I think, and I see myself a lot, even in that little eight-year-old boy. For Kevin, it was just jumping on his parents' bed, eating popcorn for breakfast. Now, I don't know if that's what you would do, but we have our own devices we go to to uh, express our independence from God. And we've all, we've all been guilty of that. And I'm not sure what it looks like for you, but the issue is that all of us, at one time or another, some, at some point in our lives, we have gone our own way. We have done our own thing. We have 
turned our backs on God. And we sought what we believed would be true freedom. And what happens is it results in separation. You know, just like for Kevin, he was separated from his family. When we turn our backs on God and do our own thing, the Bible calls that sin. And that brings about separation. And you all know what, that, what that's like. If you've, ever had any, if you've had, ever had anybody do something to you that was wrong in a relationship, you know what that causes. It breaks down the relationship. It causes separation. It causes a divide that needs to be bridged. There must be reconciliation for that relationship to be um, mended, uh, to get to a place where it can actually grow again. And it's the same thing with us and God. When we turn our backs on Him, there's separation. There's a breakdown. And the Bible calls that sin. Our sin separates us from God. Now for a time, as you're watching this movie, Kevin enjoys being alone, right? Because he can do whatever he wants. There's no one there to tell him what he should do and what he should not do. He can do whatever he wants. But his aloneness, his separation from his parents begins to set in. And he begins to miss his family. And he begins to feel lonely. And we've all experienced that sense of loneliness. Now for Kevin, it was a sense of loneliness that is experienced when a loved one is not present anymore. Whether it's separated by distance or separated by death. And we've all experienced that. Especially during the holiday season, it can become even more pronounced. There is a separation, there is a loneliness that we feel that we wish we were together with this person again. And some of you maybe, maybe even experienced that during Thanksgiving uh, when maybe someone couldn't, could not come to the dinner or you could not go to them or maybe they're just no longer with us. And so we've all experienced that type of loneliness. And we know that God tells us that man is not meant to be alone, that we need people in our lives. And so to have relationships with one another is important and we need that. But I I do believe there is a deeper sense of loneliness that we need to address. Not only separation from one another, but there is a deeper sense of loneliness, a greater sense of loneliness that that we must address that goes even beyond being separated from our loved ones. And it's a loneliness tied to our existence. It's, It's tied to who God is. It's tied to how we relate to God. It's tied to the bigger questions of life itself. And we all have a tendency to, like I said, go our own way without seeking after God. But this leads, leads us, leaves us separated from the one that actually made us to be in a relationship with himself. So my point is, you know, you can only jump on the bed and eat popcorn so long without addressing the deeper questions of life. And when you do, like Kevin, you realize that you are, in fact, home alone. That when left to ourselves, we are alone. We are apart from God, separated from God. And the one thing is, like I said, it's one thing to be alone without family and friends during a holiday. But how much greater will the loneliness be for eternity without God? And these are the greater questions that we need to to wrestle with even this morning. In the movie, you know, Kevin begins to regret that uh, he wished his family would disappear. He, he longs to be back with them. And while he's experiencing this, across the ocean, you have Kevin's mom. 
that once she realizes that he is alone, she energetically, tirelessly, sacrificially tries to make her way back to her son. And so the rest of the movie plays out where Kevin's on his, he's dealing with the troubles of life and obviously some, a couple burglars that are try, trying to break in the house and that leads to some great comedy. But Kevin's mom is tirelessly, sacrificially trying to get back to her son and to be reunited with him. And the resolution occurs at the end of the movie when Kevin's mom pulls up in front of the house in what's the equivalent of a U-Haul truck with a polka band and goes inside the house, yells Kevin's name. Kevin comes running down the stairs and they embrace in this long-awaited hug. And there's this beautiful picture of reconciliation that was accomplished only because of the mother's sacrificial efforts to reunite with her son. You know, and I was watching this, you know, obviously it's a funny movie, there's some touching moments, but Kevin's mother, her willingness to, to go through what she went through, to tirelessly pursue her son, to sacrificially give up resources and sleep to be with her son, reminds me of how God has tirelessly, sacrificially given himself to us in order to bring us into a relationship with himself. And while we were going our own way, doing our own thing, God is pursuing us. Just as Kevin's mother came to him, God has come to us. And all throughout the Bible, we read a phrase that has profound meaning. It's, it's scattered throughout the Scripture. And if you've been reading through the Bible with us, you've, you've encountered it several times. It's when God says this, I will be their God and they will be my people. All throughout the scripture, and you trace it all the way through to the book of Revelation, where finally, when heaven and earth are, are united into one, he says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. The Bible is a story of reconciliation. It's a story of God taking the initiative to rescue rebellious mankind. And it is God sacrificially doing what is necessary to bring us out of loneliness into a relationship with himself. And this is why we see a unique name applied to Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. If you read Matthew chapter 1, you read about the birth of Jesus Christ and how it came about. And then you see a specific name, a title, description given to Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 in verse 22. Listen to what Matthew says. He says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. He's referring there to the prophet Isaiah. Which what he's about to say occurs in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And I love this part, he says, which means God with us. In other words, you may not know Hebrew. You may know Greek or some other language. So he's saying... His name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what we read in the scripture is that God became flesh and moved into our neighborhood. Your God took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God with us. He is God and that he is worthy of our worship. You know, the unique thing about Jesus is that um, opposed to every other religious leader and teacher is that every other religious leader and teacher 
will seek to tell you how to find God, whereas Jesus tells us that He is the path to God and that He is God Himself. Jesus is God with us. He is with in the sense that He is near. God is near. He is here. He is present. He is not distant. You know, I heard a a young lady giving a testimony a few weeks ago and she was talking about how she always believed in God, but she believed He was far off. But Matthew says, no, Jesus is God with us. He's near. He's present. He's here. And He's not only present to keep the world going, but He's present in a relational manner. He's present to establish this relationship between us and God. So God made us to be in a relationship with Himself. He is the one that has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. God is near. God is with us. Now who is God with? It is true, you read the Scripture, God is present everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere. However, just because you are in the same room as someone doesn't mean you know them or that you have a relationship with them, right? For example, this past summer when we went to New York City, uh, we had the opportunity to go to the uh, TV show Live with Kelly Ripa. Alright? So we went in there, and long story short, uh, everyone in the family got in but me, and then I got one of these hey, come over here type motions. And they let me in and I'm standing there like just a few you know, yards from Kelly Ripper. They just put me in there. I didn't have a seat, but they just let me stand there. So anyway, I'm at the TV show. I am with Kelly Ripper. However, just because I can see her, she can see me, doesn't mean we know each other, right? I know that may surprise you, but we don't. We don't. I don't know her. She doesn't know me. There's no relationship there. So it's possible to be in this, even the same room as someone, and some of you even know this, to be in the same room with someone and not have a relationship with them or not be in good terms with that person. So just because God is present everywhere doesn't mean that He is known by everyone. So God is with us, but who is God with? Just like you can feel alone in the midst of a crowd, it is possible for you and me to recognize that God is present and yet we can still remain separated from Him. The Bible tells us that God is present in a special way to those who want to know Him. Another way to say this is the way John says it in chapter 1 of his gospel. He says, those who believe in Jesus Christ have been given the right to become children of God. In other words, those who believe in Jesus... Know God in a special way, in a relational way. There is a special relationship for those who not only experience the presence of God, but who want to know God personally. And what this means is that for those who believe in Jesus, God is with us. I was thinking about this because, you know, Matthew says Jesus has this description, this, this title, this name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I was beginning to think about how do, we, how do we experience the presence of people in our lives? So just think about even your Thanksgiving meal or maybe the last time you saw a family member or a friend. 
You know, I know growing up, my family, we were just, we were huggers. And you have people like that in your family, huggers. They just hug you. Everybody. No matter who you are, if they know you or not, they're just hugging people. So maybe one of the ways you experience the presence of somebody in your life that you, they come walking through the door, whether it's a family member or friend, is that you, maybe you hug them. And you talk to them. And then you, you laugh with them. You cry with them. You, maybe you eat with them, like at Thanksgiving or some other holiday. You know, there's, there's ways that we experience the presence of the people we love. And I was thinking about this, and I'm thinking, well, how, how do we experience and enjoy the presence of God? If God is with me, if God is with us, you can't hug Him. You can't eat with Him. So how do we, how, how is God with us, and how do we enjoy the presence of God with us, if He's truly with us? And there is a difference because I can't see him. But listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8. He says, though you have not seen him, he's talking about Jesus, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Isn't that interesting? Peter says, even though you can't see Jesus, who is God with us, you love Him. And you're filled with joy. And you trust Him. And you believe in Him. So how do we experience the presence of God? And I'm just trying to think in in my own life, how do I experience the presence of God in my life? And I think there's three parts to it, at least, that I can speak of. One is, there's an intellectual part. In other words, we experience God the way we experience a relationship with any other person. The only way you experience a relationship with any other person is by knowing them. And so the way we experience the presence of God in our lives is by knowing Him. And we know Him through what He has said about Himself in the Scripture. And so that is one of the ways we experience His presence is by growing in our knowledge of God through His Word and observing His world. One writer said it this way, there is a spiritual seeing in the heart of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And without it, no one is saved. Michael Card expressed the paradox of not seeing, yet seeing, in one of his songs like this. Listen to what he says. To hear with my heart, to see with my soul, to be guided by a hand I cannot hold, to trust in a way that I cannot see, that's what faith must be. So there is a knowledge of the unseen one that draws me to him and causes me to love him, trust him. So one part of that experiencing the presence of God is knowing him through his word. There's also an experiential part as we come to know this God with us. Psalmist says in Psalm 34, 8, listen to this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, why do you think he said it that way? Why didn't he just say, know that the Lord is good. The Lord is good, just know that. He didn't say it that way. He says, you need to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
That's experiential language. That means there, when you enter a relationship with God, there is something there that you will experience over time that you will become convinced that He is good. Now, this may take several forms or may experience in several ways. This may be an answer to prayer. God may bring about some provision in your life or it may come through a person or it may just be evident in His providential working in your life. But in some way, shape, or form, God works in your life. He's a personal God. And so there is an experiential part to the Christian faith. And then thirdly, there's an emotional part um, as we experience God. Often feelings follow our faith. Feelings follow our faith. As you know, uh, Helen Keller... She was blind, and yet she did great things for the, both the blind and the seeing community. And listen to what she says, or what she said. She said, the best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. And so there is a, a place for feelings. And like I said, our feelings often follow our faith. And I believe this is why the Bible tells us that in Christ, we experience the peace of God. We experience contentment. I think this is why the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So he's saying that there's a mixture of feelings and dispositions that are wrapped up in the experience of God that, that all of us experience in some way or another. And the truth is that even knowing this, knowing that God is with us, that He has pursued us, that we have been reconciled with Him, just like Kevin and his mom, they came together, there was this experience of, uh, they hugged each other, they caught up on what was going on through communication, there was an overflow of emotion, and so some of those elements are the same with us as we experience God through Jesus Christ. But even though we have God in our lives, those of you who have placed your faith in Jesus, loneliness still may creep in. But if you have faith in in Christ, you're never truly alone because God is with us. And it's interesting, as you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew begins his Gospel by saying, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And at the very end of his Gospel, in Matthew 28, what does he say? He gives us the Great Commission and then he says, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So during this Christmas season, even though you may be surrounded by many people, loneliness may creep in. But as a child of God, you can take comfort in knowing that you will never be home alone. Because Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your pursuit of us. As we were in our own houses, doing our own thing, God, you pursued us through the person of Jesus Christ. You took on flesh, you dwelt among us. And God, we're so thankful that you sent your son. And it's during this season that we especially celebrate his, his first coming. And we anticipate His second coming. And in the meantime, Lord, as we face difficulty, as we face challenges, as we walk through this life, and we may even experience loneliness, even great loneliness at times, let us remember that 
Jesus is Emmanuel. And if we have Christ in our lives, then we know that you are with us. And that is a great comfort. And we give you praise for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.